This is Steve Kim. Andy Steiger. Welcome to the AC Podcast. On this podcast, we want to help you speak the language of our culture and address questions being asked with intellectual honesty, gentleness, and respect. We are back, except this time it's just Andy and me. So we're doing this quarantine style where he's recording in his office and I'm recording in my office. And so you are actually listening to the product that comes from two different provinces. The Steve Andy Show. Yeah, Steve Andy Show. Before we get started, I just wanted to share something with all of us. If you're in the apologetic circles, you've probably been hearing a lot about Ravi Zacharias lately. If you are not aware, he has received some pretty grim prognosis on his cancer. Uh, He's been having some back pains and things like that. And in the course of testing and things like that, they discovered this tumor in his sacrum. And they started treating that with chemotherapy. But by this time, this cancer has already metastasized. And so it's spread everywhere, and the doctor said, yeah, the tumor in the sacrum is responding to chemo, but everything else is just too aggressive. There's nothing more we can do. So as we speak, Ravi is at home now with his family in Atlanta, and he is living out his last few days or weeks with his family. Yeah, this is incredibly sad news for me because I don't know about you, Andy, but When I first started out in apologetics, or just not even apologetics, when I was really struggling with my faith, especially in my early 20s, mid-20s, Ravi was sort of, for me, the oasis in the middle of the desert. It's a bit of a crass way to put it, but he was sort of the gateway drugs to apologetics for me. And so he's had a huge influence in my life, certainly, as a Christian. Um, So for me, it was incredibly sad to hear. Uh, What about you? What's your connection to Ravi? if you will. Uh, yeah, for me as well. I, and I believe I coined that idea, the gateway drug, uh, or at least in my mind, I like to think so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that, that honestly is, you know, how, how I've always kind of viewed him, not in a demeaning way, but in one of those ways that, you know, he, he's often the entrance for many people into the area of apologetics and has been an incredible encouragement in a lot of people's lives. Uh, as he has been for me. And really, he was kind of a gateway for me to go much deeper into, you know, again, playing off of this idea of the harder stuff. That's not to say that Ravi wasn't an incredible or isn't an incredibly deep thinker. He is. But he has a way of making things accessible to people that really did, you know, make him as kind of this gateway into going deeper in your faith and knowing that there are good reasons for what we believe. And, And so, this has kind of started a bit of a movement that you can check out and even participate in called the hashtag Thank You Ravi, uh, in which you can see, you know, many people have shared how Ravi has made an impact in their lives. And you can share, you know, your own story of how he's impacted you. Uh, we, I'm just so incredibly thankful for uh, the ministry uh, that he has done over these years and the number, the vast number of people who have been positively impacted by his ministry. Um, And so, our hearts and prayers are with him and his family right now. Uh, Listen, we don't know what's going to happen, but obviously things look very grim. 
uh, but we want to pray healing upon him. We want to pray counsel upon him and his family as they, as, you know, as they spend time together right now as, as what looks like are his final days. Yeah, we're, we're very thankful to him. Speaking of illness, obviously the biggest thing that's on the public consciousness, if you will, is COVID-19. And it looks like this quarantine life is going to be the new norm, at least for the foreseeable future. Yeah, this is one thing that, that we're seeing with regards to, uh, you know, even life here in British Columbia, that yes, Canada is starting to open up business again, and so is the United States and around the world. Things are slowly starting to go back to normal. But you're right, Steve, that social distancing and a lot of the things that we're used to, like going to concerts or going to church and things like that, are still going to be off limits for a while. I know here in British Columbia, the rules around this are that there can be no gatherings of greater than 50 people. And the way that British Columbia is kind of unrolling this is in different phases. And so we're, we're into, you know, this next phase of, of opening up the economy. But it was made very clear, at least here in British Columbia, that, you know, things really aren't going to change until a vaccine is created, that that's most likely what's going to be required to open things back up to normal. Yeah. And what we are hearing is that there are actually a lot of different kinds of groups and companies and organizations that are in the process of developing vaccines, whether they they work or not, that's still being discovered as people are testing these things. But uh, we wanted to talk today about the ethics behind these things. So Just to kind of let you listeners know what's going on right now, Andy actually sent me a number of articles last week on these different attempts at developing vaccines and and whatnot. A number of them have already gone into clinical testing. And now, typically, when you go into these clinical testing phase, there are actually several phases. For example, in the United States, with the approval of the Food and Drugs Administration, the FDA, you will go into, say, phase one, where you take a vaccine that you've developed and test it on uh, maybe a dozen or so of healthy volunteers. And then if everything is looking good, then you move into phase two, where you test it on several hundred people in an outbreak area. And then when that goes well, then you move into the third phase, where you now test it on thousands of people. But there is also this push because of this pandemic the economy is really hurting, people are still dying and whatnot. And so there is this push to rush this process. So they're skipping a step or two to get right into the phase where you test it on thousands of people. But also the response from the public has been that, hey, you know, we want to volunteer for this. So there have been some grassroots organizations like One Day Sooner, which we will talk about where something like 14,000 volunteers said, hey, we'd like to volunteer for the vaccine testing. So um, is there anything that you want to add to that, Andy? No, I think that there's some more kind of details that are helpful to kind of flush out around this issue so that people can begin to understand the ethical debate that's really heating up in our culture right now. As is becoming clear, you know, as 
from what we're seeing from Canada, the United States, and around the world. But we're going to need a vaccine if we're going to move into life as normal again. And so you can begin to appreciate that the impetus for creating a vaccine is quite high, this desire for a vaccine. The challenge is, is that vaccines take years to decades to create. And one of the things that a lot of people just don't appreciate, and I know I didn't until I started researching this, is that Vaccines are difficult to create for a number of reasons. One is that just the vast majority of vaccines that are created just don't work. And the problem is it can take you a while to find that out, you know, whether or not they're effective or not. And so this gets into what you were just talking about, Steve, with these three different phases. So really in phase one, what you have is you're only giving this vaccine to, you know, a few dozen people and fingers crossed, it's not going to have any adverse effects on those individuals. And that's really all that phase one is is seeking to accomplish. You know, is, is this vaccine going to be detrimental? <laughs> and if it passes that first phase where it's not hurting people, then you're moving into the second phase where you're now asking, okay, is this vaccine effective? And when we're talking about a vaccine being effective, it's kind of this two-pronged idea is one, that it's not harming the individual, but then two, that it's eliciting an immune response from the individual. So you're giving this person something that is simulating the virus to the degree that it's not harmful to you, but also to the degree that the immune system is responding to it. And in doing so, is creating antibodies that will then allow you to have immunity uh, moving forward in the future. And so this is one of the reasons why when you get into, say, phase two of a study, that you're giving this to more people and you're giving it to them in an outbreak area. And really what you're hoping for is that that individual by chance will come across that disease, say in this case, COVID-19, and then researchers can study, you know, how that vaccine worked once it was introduced to the pathogen. Did it elicit the immune response that was desired and were the people protected? And so what's happening right now in our culture is that we have two pharmaceutical, or one's a pharmaceutical company, the other one is research group. One is the Oxford Group, the Jenner Institute. They're a nonprofit uh, vaccine research institute that has come out with a vaccine that has gone through phase one and is now into phase two slash phase three of testing. And by that, it was just recently allowed for them to do a test on 6,000 people in the UK. And again, it's this hope that while there's an outbreak happening in the UK, that they're trying to move quick on it so that this vaccine will have a better chance of of interacting with COVID-19 and they can get results back. There's another company, a pharmaceutical called Moderna, that actually was quite quick in creating a vaccine as well. And as many of you, I'm sure, heard, it was released in Seattle. They released in Seattle because in the United States, that was a, a hot spot of where COVID uh, was taking place. And, and so, you know, again, you got this better chance of it interacting. So first, okay, was it safe for people to take? And they have now passed through phase one. And now they also are in to phase two, where they're going to be giving it to 600 people. So this is where things really start to slow down with the development of the vaccine, but it's also where the ethics of it start to ramp up. And the question is, is, is you can circumvent phase two into phase three and really getting this vaccine available to people, 
by instead of waiting around for vaccinated people to by chance encounter COVID-19, where you can then purposely give an individual that has this vaccine, COVID-19, and then study them to see uh, whether or not this elicited an immune response. That's the key part that's different here is that normally in developing a vaccine like this, you would wait for people who contracted the virus sort of naturally. But here we're talking about exposing people, thousands of people intentionally to this virus. And so one of the the articles that you sent me, Andy, was co-authored by Dr. Seema Shah. I hope I pronounced her name correctly in the science magazine, where they're talking about the ethics of this and how the cost-benefit analysis needs to be there. So high social value, it says here, is fundamental to justifying these studies. And so they're wrestling with the ethics of intentionally exposing people to the virus that could potentially be deadly. And there are several problems that they are trying to work through here, as I can see it. One is this issue around informed consent. So when people volunteer, how do we do this, what they call this controlled human infections or CHIs, where they're intentionally exposed to these viruses? Uh, How can they give informed consent when scientists themselves are really kind of fuzzy about the effects of the virus, right? Because there are different opinions on the actual mortality rate or you know, the long-term effects of the virus that we didn't know before, or who it affects. And generally, younger, healthier individuals, they are more resilient to the virus. But there have been cases where young people, just in Edmonton a little while ago, 20-something female died because of COVID-19, and so on and so forth. So one issue was around consent. Maybe we should talk about that first before we move on to the next concern. But what are your thoughts on this whole informed consent piece of it? Yeah, I, I think the consent piece is a challenging aspect right now that's being debated. And I mean, this is really heating up right now. We've got The World Health Organization is weighing in on this um, because in many ways they're seeing the benefits to moving forward on human trials by giving them COVID-19 and and seeing what's going to take place. And you can see this with other articles that are being written in. And, And one of the questions that's ethically concerning people is, we don't know very much about COVID-19. So it becomes very difficult to give informed consent when there's not actually a whole lot of information to begin with, uh, with regards to COVID-19 and even with these vaccines. There's very little, you know, you're a guinea pig in these things. So it's it's not like they can give you a lot of information. One of the other problems that, that I saw popping up in a lot of the ethical articles is the fact that we have no treatment for it. So that becomes an ethical concern when you're purposely exposing them to a pathogen that you do not have a cure for, and you're limited on how you're able to treat them if they have a severe reaction. There's some people, like you mentioned, Steve, that are asymptomatic, but then there's others that it kills. And so that becomes a major piece here with informed consent. So what you're finding and what I'm seeing in the ethical debate that's taking place is really that this is becoming a question of risk. And so it's an ethics of what is an acceptable amount of risk in regards to these sorts of studies, particularly purposely giving people COVID-19. 
Yeah. If I were to personally hash this out, uh, informed consent and the idea of risk, I was going to talk about these separately, but I'm seeing now that they really can't be taken apart. So let's talk about those together. One aspect that I was thinking about was, okay, when it comes to informed consent, I think we have a couple of things going on here. For one, controlled human infections, they have a bit of a bad rep because of its historical association. So uh, one article that I read that you sent to me, Andy, was talking about the Nazis and how Dr. Mengele performed all these experiments on human subjects and whatnot. And me coming from Korea, I, you know, our listeners are pretty familiar, I think, at, by this point, if you've been a regular listener, about me talking about Unit 731, this biochemical research installation in Manchuria during the Second World War and how prisoners of war, the, you know, they were injected with syphilis, gonorrhea, and all kinds of things. But what's different here is that these are now volunteers. This is where the informed consent comes in. Like it's being noted, there isn't a whole lot to tell these people. But I don't think there is a big problem if we can just tell people, hey, listen, this is what little we know about the vaccine and COVID-19. We don't actually know a whole lot. What we know is a bit fuzzy. Are you still willing to do this? And if the volunteer says, yes, I am willing to take on the risk, then I think that's ethically permissible. Now, the second aspect to this is I was actually listening to that podcast episode we did last year on that movie Free Solo. I think you remember this, Andy, where this guy, Alex Honnold, this rock climber, he free solos El Capitan. So free soloing this is where you basically climb without any safety equipment, right? You're just kind of, you have a chalk pouch and you, you're going rock climbing. And this guy, Alex Honnold, is climbing El Capitan, which is basically this cliff face that's thousands of feet tall in Yosemite. And he's doing this without any safety equipment. And so we talked about the theology of risk and theology of adventure. And one of the things that was pointed out by you and Terry was that, well, it's not like Alex Honnold went into this just kind of willy-nilly. The guy meticulously prepared for this for eight years, I believe. He climbed this with safety equipment, and he basically memorized the whole thing so he knows exactly which hand goes where, which finger grabs onto what. He managed his risk. It wasn't just a, a blind, I'm just going to do this just because. So when this vaccine is being tried, it's not like they just kind of jump into it without not knowing anything. They know generally who's more resilient to this. And so they're going to be selective in their picking and choosing of who's going to be the subject of these tests. And they also talked about how the medical staff, they're going to be equipped with personal protective equipment. So they're protected, so on and so forth. So there's a lot of thought that's going into this. And so again, risk is being managed here. Yeah, let's talk about the ethics uh, that that are being discussed here and how risk is being mitigated and how that all equates into really, uh, you know, an equation, if you will, at some level of whether or not that this is something that's ethically permissible or not. And I know that this might be a weird way of talking, but this is something that you and I do all the time. We, we are always... Uh, weighing risk in our own personal risk management portfolio, if you will, as we determine those activities that we will or will not participate in. And those are as simple as riding a bike to driving a car 
to getting onto an airplane. We understand that all of these things are dangerous at some level, and in fact, all of these things could kill you depending upon their circumstances. Yet we weigh that risk. We know that driving a car can kill us, but we weigh the risk of driving the car. And then we also seek to mitigate that risk in various ways, such as putting on a seatbelt, or if we have children, putting them into a car seat, right? And then we have airbags and different safety features that go into that car. And in doing so, you know, we get to this place where we decide, and this is personally, and it's also at a societal level, of course, of whether or not that level of risk is acceptable. So here's what's being discussed when we're talking about the level of risk involved in purposefully infecting somebody with COVID-19, whether or not this is an acceptable level of risk. And so one of the things that's being calculated in in different articles that I've seen, uh, including The Who, are saying that, you know, kind of the upper limits of what is an acceptable level of risk is a 1% or around a 1% risk of death. If it's anything less than 1% risk of death, then this, this should be an acceptable level of risk. Now, this is what gets interesting when we're talking about disease, because you can actually quantify it at that kind of level. I mean, rock climbing is difficult to quantify. Things like driving a car are a little bit easier to quantify in that we know, for example, that you know you have less risk of dying in driving a car versus flying in an airplane by you know running those numbers and what we're finding is that when you look at you know at the numbers you know it's true that there's a lot we don't know about covid however mortality rates we're starting to get a picture of what that looks like and on the whole this is coming from the who what they have said is that those aged 18 to 30 years old, that hospital rates for COVID-19 are currently estimated at around 1%, and a fatal infection is around 0.03%. So, you can see then that, you know, when we're looking at the level of risk with regards to being infected by COVID-19, at least for people that are healthy in the ages 18 to 30, uh, the risk is quite low. So, that's one of those things that then can be taken into account in, in this kind of equation, if you will, of whether or not this is acceptable. So, there are certain age demographics that would be wiser to have participate than others. There are other aspects, and you kind of hinted at these already, Steve, that can be used to mitigate risk, and that is to make sure that this individual is near a state-of-the-art hospital, that you are guaranteeing them access to medical help if the vaccine doesn't work, that this individual is limited in who they could expose to COVID-19 again if the vaccine doesn't work. And as you read the literature, these are the sorts of ideas that are being discussed as you're talking about the level of risk, and then you're also talking about that risk management. Now, I did want to just point out one more thing as you and I talk deeper about the ethics of this, because this is an aspect of the risk equation, if you will, that a lot of people are are unfamiliar with, again, myself included. I'm no expert in this, but I've found it interesting reading these ethic journal articles. And that is that vaccines, by and large, 
tend to fail. So I think that's something that, you know, as people are signing up for this, that's something that they've got to appreciate is that a lot of vaccines will be shown to be ineffective. And so that could be, uh, you know, as you're developing your own equation of whether or not I'd be willing to be a guinea pig in taking one of these vaccines and then being infected with COVID-19 that you have to think about. Now, there's another aspect too that people tend not to bring into that equation. And that is is that some people are going to receive a placebo and that that's necessary in having a control with seeing whether or not this is actually effective or not as well. So, you in fact could have had a placebo. Now, I'm guessing that, you know, maybe that's something that in this sort of an extreme circumstance, which is obviously very rare for a society to be taking these sorts of extreme steps, that maybe the placebo would be taken away. However, there is other encouraging research that's come out to kind of tip the scales the other way that, you know, would encourage people to participate. And that is that there's an institute called the Rocky Mountain Laboratory gave six monkeys this vaccine from the Oxford group, the Jenner Institute, and then they infected them with COVID-19 to see what would happen. And in fact, they gave them a heavy dose, it was reported, and none of the monkeys got sick uh, 28 days later. They were all healthy. And so, that was powerful evidence that this vaccine is effective, but yet again, you have to weigh into that. It has been shown that you can have vaccines that are effective on animals, but yet not effective on humans, as the human immune system is quite complicated. And so, I think you can start to get an appreciation how the ethics of this start to literally be weighed out as you're taking in this evidence and then you're determining whether or not you feel that the risk is acceptable. So, let me ask you, Steve, mm-hmm. I think listeners would would be saddened if we didn't ask this question. <laughs> Given what we've talked about thus far, uh, Steve, would you participate as you weigh the risk, would you volunteer to be infected with COVID-19 if you had one of these vaccines? That would depend. Uh, I would make an excellent lawyer. My answer is always, it depends, right? Um, I, I think it would depend for me. Like it, All things being equal, I think I would, just given that data alone, like I would definitely do it. But there are a few things that complicate things for me personally, because one, as you know, I'm a bit higher risk because my lungs are borderline asthmatic and I am a little bit older, so I'm not 20 something anymore. And, you know, I I have a family, right? I have two young kids to take care of as well. And so I I would have to take all of that into account. What about you? Uh, Well, first of all, I'd have to agree with you. I've worked long enough with you. I know uh, your susceptibility. (laughs) (laughs) To the common cold, let alone COVID-19. So, yeah, I would definitely say for somebody like you, maybe not the best idea. Now, for somebody like myself, this kind of is interesting in that, yeah, I am a little bit older as well. However, some of the other stats I've seen show that the risk is quite low, even up to age 44 is still quite low. I'm 41. So, I mean, you could take that into account and say, okay, yeah, you know, the numbers work out. Now, so for me, maybe this is weird, I don't know, but I have virtually no fear of being infected with COVID-19, vaccine or not. 
Uh, maybe that's just blissful ignorance. I, I don't know. <laughs> so COVID-19 doesn't scare me as much as a human-created vaccine scares me. Mm. I get concerned personally with vaccines. And I think this is one of the scary aspects of how fast we're producing these vaccines is, you know, we're looking at producing these vaccines within a period of months. I mean, the Oxford group is anticipating to be able to start rolling out large scale doses by September, especially if they're allowed to infect people with COVID-19 to demonstrate its effectiveness. And then with regards to Moderna, the numbers I'm hearing are November, uh, that this could start rolling out in the United States or North America. And in fact, the Oxford group is hedging their bets on this. They're, they're already starting to mass produce uh, the vaccine in preparation that it's successful. And I guess I just get kind of concerned because humans just don't have a great track record of creating things that work with anything that's complicated and the human body is complicated. And so it is, to me, I get a little nervous and I can't help but think that once this vaccine's prepped, they probably won't want to give it to everyone. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. What if, you know, there's issues that develop from this vaccine that don't manifest for like a year or two? That's one of the reasons why it can take a decade to create a vaccine because you want to know if there is there any long-term harm. Before we continue, a message from Andy. Hi, everyone. This is Andy Steiger. I wanted to let you know that the 10th Annual Apologetics Canada Conference was a great success and that the conference recordings are now available. The recordings not only have all the sessions from the conference, including all the breakout sessions, but some bonus material as well. We have included a special class that Daryl Bach taught for us and Wesley Huff about how we got the Bible and can we trust the Bible. To purchase and download the recordings, go to apologeticscanada.com. And now, back to the podcast. Now, there is one other thing, though, that has to get weighed into this. So, so just to push this all aside, so Andy is cautiously optimistic about vaccines. And in many ways, I'd rather take my chances with COVID-19 and just have <laughs> a natural antibody development through just getting that illness. I think there's some some listeners out there that probably can agree with me. Others probably think I'm crazy. The aspect, though, of the ethics of this is, is something that is being brought into, you know, the kind of calculations for people. And we're seeing this because, I mean, uh, we'll post these on the show notes, but right now there are already 14,000 people that signed up to get infected with COVID-19. Like People are ready to take this risk. But for a lot of people, this isn't a huge risk because the odds are that most of us are going to get COVID-19. And so that gets weighed into this whole risk assessment that we have these outbreaks that are happening all around us. And it's just impossible to keep your, it's like trying to not get the flu. I mean, good luck on that. You're eventually going to get it. And so I think that that's for some people, they're like, man, I'm going to get COVID-19 anyways, might as well just get it over with. And at the same time, I can see if I can help some people in the meantime. Now that brings me into this last thing that I think you and I should talk about, Steve. And that is, how does a Christian view the ethics of this. And so I, I want to throw it back to you, man, from a Christian perspective. I know you and I were just discussing this from an Andy Steve perspective, but 
But how does a Christian approach the ethics of something like this? I was thinking about this over the last few days. And again, like I mentioned earlier, I had to really go back to, and I'm going to post this episode on our show notes, The Theology of Adventure and Risk, that episode that we did last year. And one other thing that we discussed in that episode that is relevant here is the idea that why you're doing something matters greatly. It changes the whole equation, right? So the the question is, why are you taking the risk? So again, earlier I mentioned Unit 731, Dr. Mengele from the Nazi party and how they performed all these experiments and so how these controlled human infections, they have a bit of a bad history. But in this case, what we have is a bunch of volunteers, which by the way, the 14,000 people that have signed up Uh, They signed up with a group called One Day Sooner that was started by this 34-year-old Josh Morrison from New York, who happens to be also an organ donor. He donated one of his kidneys. And in the NBC News article that you sent me, Andy, I see a picture of Josh Morrison standing, you know, arms over shoulders with this gentleman who was the recipient of that kidney. And so you can sort of get the gist of you know the feel for this kind of group like here are a bunch of people who want to volunteer but why do they want to volunteer it's because they want to do some good in humanity i'm gonna put my life at risk in order that some good might come from it for other people as well and i think that is from a christian perspective that is a very good thing in fact that's what jesus taught right in john 15 verse 13 he said Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. That's what I see here. Uh, What I see is people wanting to help other people, even at the risk to their own life. Yeah, I think that's a very Christian thing to do. You know, it's interesting, Steve, that this week, actually on May 12th, was Nurses Day. And I think it's interesting that that... International Day, you know, to just thank nurses, was inspired by Florence Nightingale, and they picked May 12th because that was her birthday. Mm -hmm. And there was a nurse that did incredible work, and the work that she did came directly from her Christian perspective Mm -hmm. and her desire to care and to love for people. And so, this, this has been a part of the Christian tradition, you know, for a long time, and you see this throughout history, where Christians are willing to take a risk. Again, it's not like it's an outlandish risk, but it is It is this ethically weighed risk, though, in the desire to help people. We have people on the front lines, like nurses, doctors, firefighters, policemen, people who are and, I'm, and the list goes on, there, there's many, who, whether it be COVID-19 or not, are constantly taking risks for people that I think is noble and that I'm incredibly thankful for them and the work that they do. And particularly, you know, from a Christian perspective, that these are, uh, I guess you could say, you know, noble professions in that they value human life. And that there is a level of risk that's being taken and sacrifice that's being taken for other people's good. And right now, you know, a lot of those people are taking an extra level of risk for us. And so, in some ways, don't you think in some ways the ethics of this is kind of silly in that 
There's already people putting themselves in harm's way, you know, for us daily. Uh, I don't think this is outlandish to think that we could have, you know, some people that would be willing to be purposely infected as they're, you know, helping to develop this vaccine. Well, I think that's a good place to wrap up. And as we close, um, I just want to remind you listeners that we'll be putting up all these links and articles like that on the show notes. And we will also include a link to One Day Sooner, the group that is organizing volunteers for the vaccine testing. So if you want to sign up, you can go check out that link in the show notes today. Another very tangible way, I think, that we can help You know, not all of us are going to be able to be guinea pigs with regards to this vaccine or being infected with COVID-19. But a really practical way that we can help is by giving blood right now. There is a a huge need for blood. And I know they're also looking for people who have antibodies to COVID-19 that are giving blood. That's a low risk way that you can have a, a high impact. One thing that's been on my heart and mind is I have a friend right now who has cancer, is going through chemotherapy. And there's a high likelihood that he'll need a blood transfusion through his treatment. And so right now, you know, there, there are those people who are struggling with different illnesses and still going to need help in the midst of this. That's just a very practical way that we can be of assistance. Thank you for joining us. The AC Podcast is a ministry of Apologetics Canada. And we'll come back next week with more stuff to think about. Until then, keep safe out there. Keep safe out there.